Heritopia, please welcome to the show the one and only Jeffrey Ritzman. What? I'm not the guest. No, but it's fun to announce you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Vaney, otherwise known as Jerry Vaney. Jerry? Jerry? Yeah, I've gotten more comments about the fact that Whitley Strieber calls me Jerry than I have comments about the actual episode or anything I have to say, or my book for that matter. Wow. So I'd like to thank people for paying attention. That's right. And let me just say, only Whitley gets to call me Jerry. None of you none of you schmucks out there. That includes you, Jeff. All right. Well, moving right along, Jerry, who do we have tonight? <laughs> well, we, well, we have Ted Rowe tonight. Oh, fantastic. Uh, but before we get to Ted Rowe and, and all of that fantasticness. What shall we talk about? Well, I should, I should throw this out, that uh, Taylor Galloway, who was on last week, we were talking and she felt... Uh, I don't know. She didn't feel too up about her interview. I guess she was expecting to be commenting on religion and not so much talking about her own stuff. So she wasn't prepared to go deeply into her own issues. So I guess she felt like she was being vague and and, and all of that. And I I felt like that was fine. Like we got out of her what we wanted. (laughs) (laughs) We sucked her dry of the very nectar and blood that we desire for this show so that was fine uh but also she had said uh, her dad was, is a very erotic person and she meant to say neurotic ah so she felt like maybe people might think that her dad molested her or something and that's not the case he just made her do aerobics up and down a mountain <laughs> yeah there, well, there's that but there's a lot of crazy stories from her life that she didn't share uh and maybe when we have her back on in october we can cajole some of those out of her yeah, I enjoy cajoling. For Rapture 2 Electric Boogaloo. Um, before we get into Ted Rowe, I guess I should apologize in advance for the audio quality because he is on the big island in Hawaii where I one day hope to reside along with our good friend George Nori, who I believe is moving out there. Oh, God. That's right. Uh, but anyway, in any event, the, the Skype connection is pretty piss poor. Um and there's really nothing I can do about it. So, enjoy. It's the island. It's the island. But the episode is really good. So, I think it'll be worth it. I think it'll even out in the end. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a horrible connection. It's just every once in a while you're going to hear about a eighth of a second blank spot. And um, Well, I'm, no, I took, I took some of those out. Okay, good. There's all kinds of problems. I mean, there's a problem with every now and then there's a blank spot and then, and then suddenly sped up dialogue like oh uh i mean that's really rare but what the the real problem is is that the tone changes i mean there's background hissing noise and all that and that's fine right but, but his like uh the treble in his voice is sometimes there and sometimes it's taken out and uh it's just weird it's just yeah you'll you'll hear it when you hear it and um and, that's what happens when you cross the ocean yeah so maybe i won't move there because that'll screw up paratopia 
Ah, uh, we could both go there, and that would be good. <laughs> but then you'd have to get on a plane. I'll take a boat. Thank you. <laughs> I gotta say, uh, I really liked this uh, Ted Rowe interview best of all because um, it starts off narcappy and then gets more into Ted Rowe's own experiences out in Arizona, I believe. Right. Um, and I think that there is potential for a future expedition there. Yes, absolutely. And we will be doing our best to find what the best way to go about that is and then raise money for that. Right. Um, and you'll find out what we're talking about post-haste. Um, I just said post-haste in a sentence. That's wonderful, Jeremy. You should be very proud of <laughs> yourself. You. This grand accomplishment. Yes. Uh, so is there anything else we need to uh, talk about before we get to Monsieur Ted Rowe? No, I say we dive right in. All right. Ladies and gentlemen. Notice I use dive right in in a sentence, and it's Ted Rowe. That's right. That's right. Uh-huh. Now you're reminding me to give plugs. He is NARCAP's own Ted Rowe, and that would be NARCAP.org. If you'd like to check them out on the internets, www.narcap.org. But he's also a free dive instructor there on the Big Island, and I can attest that he is the best, for I have swam with the dolphins with Ted Rowe. And, uh, Everyone, just close your eyes and take a <laughs> mental picture of what Jeremy just said. I want you all to focus on this just for a moment. Yes. Can uh, you hear that? I hear it too. The, uh, the sea turtles were probably more my speed, but I swam with the dolphins anyway. <laughs> Uh, and so, if you want to see all kinds of cool video of him swimming with dolphins and or, you know, take a class with him or go diving with him, you can reach him at everblue-freediving.blogspot.com. That's a lot. Everblue, one word, dash, freediving.blogspot.com. Uh, or find him on Facebook, Ted Rowe, R-O-E. I'm sure he'd love to be your friend. We'd all love to be your friend. That's right. Who wouldn't want to be your friend? <laughs> You're worth it. Well, I guess that's enough pandering. Here comes the interview. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it. We take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Paratopia, without further ado, as is my favorite thing to say for some reason, here is NARCAP's own Ted Rowe. Ted, thank you so much for coming back on the program. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, always happy to... Respond to your call. <laughs> uh, respond to my call, eh? That's right. Yeah, well, I'll take your call, Jeff. When yeah. last I left you, um, NARCAP was on the verge of working with the Chilean government, right? And so now 
You sent me the text of a cover letter that uh, says, It is with great pleasure that I write these few lines to accompany the signed agreement of cooperation, NARCAP, C-E-F-A-A, through Chile's General Direction of Aeronautics, D-G-A-C. So you've got an agreement of cooperation with Chile's General Direction of Aeronautics. What does that mean? What does that entail? And congratulations. Well, thank, thank you. Um, it, it means a few different things depending on the perspective. The, the actual agreement itself is an agreement to uh, conduct research. And um, um, the, the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to exchange information and dialogue. We're going to—it's it's an open dialogue between our organizations on anything that we don't consider a matter of national security. Um, that's the first part of it, and then. Um, we're going to exchange information on how we go about doing our investigations, and, and as um, investigation methodology shifts, we're going to make sure that we're in dialogue so that we can adapt, make sure our data sets are compatible, and then uh, uh, we're also going to uh, engage in joint uh, uh, research and uh, uh, probably do symposiums and publications of one type or another whenever it looks like a good idea for both of us to do it. So it's not a simple case of the Chilean government goes here. We have these UAP cases we don't know what to do with. Can you make sense of them? Is, is that sort of what they're doing or no? Well, it's a little bit of that. Uh, we, uh, some cases they forward to us to, to look at. We've, had some, we've done some photo analysis, for example, of different things that, that have been uh, forwarded to the government there. Um, to take a look at. Uh, uh, there's been some other discussions and conversations. We're still in the formative stages of figuring out just how to interface our organizations. Right now, I'm kind of looking at uh, trying to develop a peer review team that's that's uh, a mutual peer review team composed of members from both groups. Then we can test our uh, our papers prior to publishing and make sure that, that we're really putting quality documents out there. Well, is this a, as big a deal as it sounds? I mean, this sounds like something that should be all over the, you know, ufological news everywhere. Like, hey, here it is. Here's what everyone wanted. Um, well, at least some government taking this seriously and working with an actual organization. Well, you know, I, I think it is. Uh, uh, one of the other points that we're going to do with, with the, the Chileans is develop a, a training program for their air controllers and their pilots. And that will be inserted into the pilot recurrency programs. Uh, they met with their military recently and discussed this development of, of an agreement with us. And we're all in sort of com- a compatible mode right now to uh, at least do some modification on their side. General Bermudez really is to be uh, uh, commended for taking a leadership role in all of this. He, uh, he approached me about in May of last year. It's been about a year ago with a suggestion of a, a formal agreement. And it, it's part of a coalition building effort, I believe on his part that will involve other organizations in, in South America, other official teams in South America, and uh, efforts in merit. What is their main focus? Is it is it we want to know what this stuff is, or is it pilot safety? Well, you know, it, 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 really they're, they're, they're both the same. We want to know what they are, and we know that they affect pilots, and a lot of our better reports come from aviation sources. So uh, it... it, it it's a point of relevance in that it involves safety and nobody wants to lose an airplane by ignoring something that uh, um, should have been looked at. Uh, and, and so in that sense, given that a lot of reports of, of quality do come from pilots and air controllers, it, it, it's, it, it's a good idea to uh, focus in that area. It's relevant, you know, versus some other aspects that might be intriguing, but not, not quite so day-to-day relevant, I guess is the word. So if you've got this unknown uh, in the air, what sort of um, 
what can you really say to a pilot about that? That that makes sense, I guess. I mean, what what can you say in terms of well, you know, do's and don'ts to an unknown? Well, uh, it's fairly clear from from just looking at uh, quantitative analysis of pilot encounters with with uh, unknowns that, that the smart thing to do is just uh, to put it behind you, um, fly away from it, uh, don't don't get close to it. Um, um, don't, uh, there, a lot of times pilots will make a decision to investigate and they'll turn into it. Uh, sometimes there's a, a less than acceptable uh, outcome to that uh, decision. But what you really want is, is conservative judgment calls. A lot of times these things are not detected on radar. So uh, a, a pilot or an air crew, the, they, they, the, the, the initial stimulus is their sighting. And, and without some kind of guidance telling them that there are things up there that we haven't quite resolved yet, um, they're kind of stuck on their own, and we really just want to bolster their judgment. Uh, just give them a little bit of extra um, a judgment call so that they can show their responsibility and, and um, be conservative in their their engagements of, of unknowns. When you say that you're not going to release, of course, data that, that might have to do with national security, is that their national security? Is that our national security? Who's national security? It's big. Basically, it's it's by mutual agreement that we publish. That's probably an easier way of saying it. That we only publish if we both agree to, um, and that and if we don't agree to, it could include reasons of national security for either country. If we pick up something that we're pretty sure is a uh, um, a drone, for example, uh, or uh, or evidence of some kind of an intelligence operation or anything else, we're we're obviously not going to be talking about that to anybody. We're going to. We're just going to withdraw on that particular item. Um, well, what if it is something that is so obviously? What if you saw, for instance, an intelligently controlled craft, and there was no denying that that's what it was, but it wasn't uh, from around here? Is that something you would disclose? Sure, as long as they're they're in agreement, we would. What we do is we we work the the case, do the investigation, gather all the data, get it all together sit down and talk between ourselves as far as what we have and then make a decision on what we know and, and who, who we think needs to know about it and then go from there. In their, their situation, they have a, a transparent organization that reports to the, the, the public. So in most cases, unless it involves national security at a high level, they're, not going, they're, going, to, they're going to publish and they're going to make it available to the public. Um, uh, and we, we follow pretty much a similar standard. Have you seen anything from them that has been amazing? That you said, "Wow, well, you know, something." We we we've done some investigations, but you know, um, no investigation is foolproof. So so there's there's always a minority report. If, if the work is done well, then you have you have a majority report that everybody kind of nods their head on and, and is in agreement of. But then you have a secondary report. Ideally, you bring two teams to an investigation and you keep them separate, and then. They report their findings at the end, and if they concur, they concur. If not, you publish both perspectives with whichever whichever one you feel is more likely to, to be closer to correct, um, being the majority report. So ideally, we can take a, an approach like this. And, and uh, again, these are when we have incidents and cases, what we're doing is forensic doc, documentation. So we're, we're trying to acquire a good, clean, well-scored data set. Of, of cases that, that represent unknowns in whatever um, profiles or configurations they appear in, and then from there we can do more quantitative analysis. It's all very preliminary work, um, even at this level. Uh, what do you hope to 
find out of that sort of analysis? Well, I, I think what, what I expect to find um, without steering the investigation at all is that there's probably several natural phenomena or poor, uh, natural poorly documented phenomena that uh, represent some types of UAP sightings uh, and profiles. And then there are others that, that are probably going to be, um, I mean, just judging by what, what we all are looking at, there's some other cases that beg a much closer look uh, that really need to be brought to uh, the attention of a large group of academics for, for further review. Um, this is kind of what I'm hoping for with General Bermuda is because all of these teams, including ours, have a, a large number of PhDs on board. Um, the, the Chilean team's got probably 20. Um, uh, the French team's got 30. Uh, there, there are others, uh, 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 other groups. Uh, the Argentinians are just com- com- putting together a team right now. So uh, this is going to this this makes Blue Book really look anemic, you know. Are you, so you're all sharing data. All of these different countries are, are well sharing. This is the this is the direction we're moving in. I'd really like to get to a point where we can have a critical peer review at a fairly high level between these organizations, share cases, normalize data and data collection techniques, and really get to a point where we can make a statement about this um, that would uh, have some leverage somewhere, at least with the UN and the ICAO, if not not with a, a broader voice of, uh, in other aspects of the UN. What would that What would that be? I'm, I'm just I'm trying to get a sense of politically where something like this goes. You make a speech about what exactly at the UN? Well, uh, if it's the UNICAO, for example, that's the International Civil Aviation Organization, and and um, and at that point, what we do is we 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 have a number of member states that are members of one of the seven regional ICAO areas. Uh, forward documentation and information to, for review by the larger group, and, and what you try to do is stimulate a dialogue and get them to talk about about these phenomena and engage in a larger data collection scheme and, and a more proactive approach to uh, dealing with it, including it in their uh, low frequency of occurred events uh, catalogs as that's a possibility. This kind of stuff, um, and, and and so in that sense, that's where I'd like to see it go. It would date if. What is suspected about some of these phenomena is is somehow uh, gains more weight or, or credence amongst this this coalition of research teams, and obviously, then that's going to have to be championed as well. So, uh, looking forward to the future, if, if all of this can come together in the next four or five years, I, I think we could have some really interesting research done, and, and uh, uh, maybe make some steps towards getting some resolution uh, on some of these UAP profiles. Well, what do you think is a realistic best-case scenario with this? I mean, do you think it's that you're going to figure out what the unknown portion of this is, or is it that enough evidence is going to be gathered and it's going to be done in such a a public and and international way that there's some sort of official acknowledgement that, okay, we give, there's an unknown flying around up there, but we aren't worried about it? I mean, what what, what would be the best-case scenario of of um, that sort of international dialogue? Well, you know, it, it kind of goes to two areas. The first off is that, that like I said, I think there is a, a, a category of, of poorly documented natural phenomena, maybe a couple of them, that, that are accountable for some types of UAP reports. And with, when it's like that, there's a responsibility for at least the aviation system to acknowledge and be proactive about it. 
and that is a that's a tacit acknowledgement that there's a phenomenon up there, maybe more than one that could represent a hazard. And of course, the UK, when the the Ministry of Defence of the UK came out with their uh, Condine con report uh, a few years ago, uh, they, they they stated that that UAP. Uh, uh, we said that, that UAP exists is indisputed and that uh, they probably represent a hazard to safe aviation. And that those kinds of things need to be put in the proper context with the aviation community and acted on. And at that point, then you're opening the door for more, more scientific engagement to, to get closer to what these things are, develop profiles so eventually you can get a taxonomy and name the darn things. You know, it, it's, it's like the... Um, uh, in the beginning, in 1989 or 88, something like that, Vanessy and Vaughn, a couple of researchers, uh, surveyed pilots to, because they'd been hearing about this discharge phenomena between the tops of thunderheads in the upper atmosphere, and scientists and atmospheric physicists at the time poo-pooed it, and they did it for decades, said that, well, the atmosphere doesn't work that way, and that's just nonsense. But Vanessy and Vaughn surveyed pilots, found 15 of these uh, reports that seemed to document a discharge between uh, thunderheads in the, the sky, and uh, within a, a little bit, they discovered blue jets and sprites and um, red dwarves and all the other um, phenomena that relate to a, a atmospheric discharge that's vertical. And uh, um, so there, there's an example of pilots telling you that they're seeing stuff, and then somebody actually followed up and found something. So uh, I, I think that, you know, they, as far as observers go, you'll hear Oberg and others try and hack away at them, but the bottom line is the responsibility is. To, to get to the bottom of the story. Too many of these guys are telling us that they're seeing things, and we need to take that seriously and get an answer to it. Is that upper atmosphere phenomenon you just described the same as plasmas, or is that something different? No, it, it's not, not the same as plasmas, although there's probably some aspect of it that's plasma-related. It, it, what it is is basically it's a, it's a lightning discharge, only it's a huge one, and it goes between the top of the thunderhead and the upper atmosphere, so it, it goes vertically. The pilots see it because they're often at an angle where they can actually see the top of a thunderhead and see this discharge happen. Uh, but the, the Renzo Cavassi and his team at CIPH, uh, they, they, they were used to be the EMBLA team that was studying Hestel in Norway, and they still do. It's a joint team between Norwegian scientists and uh, some Italian guys, including Cavassi's team. But they've been taking photographs from the ground of sprites and, and jets, as they call it. And, uh, they're fairly convincing. You can see it on the CIPH web, website. As far as plasmas go, uh, would you consider those natural phenomena, or would you consider those, are, are they living? What are they? Well, you know, that, that's a really good question, um, because, for example, plasma phenomena that appear and are they're called up, caught up under the general heading of earth lights, um, and I've seen a, uh, a number of these things out in the uh, southwest desert. Uh, uh, they're very intriguing. They have long durations, much longer than lightning, minutes, tens of minutes. Um, some of them repeat regularly in the, in the, the same location with the same uh, frequency, uh, same color and spectrum. Uh, they, uh, others are quite mobile. Some come to locations and leave them. Uh, the the uh, Pilots talk about seeing orange balls of light at altitude. And then we have these kind of orange balls of light reported on the ground. I don't know if they're related to, you know, the ones that are uh, Earth light. One of the category of Earth light observations is related to what pilots are seeing at altitude or not. But uh, uh, highly organized plasma, you know, NASA talked about, there was a paper out a while back, I think they referred to it as weird light. And the hypothesis was that uh, in certain very low gravity environments like Saturn's rings, for example, there might be some common 
explanation of charging dust that will organize into uh, a rudimentary lifelike behaviors of consumption and division and um, uh, other types of basic behaviors. And if that's the case, maybe we got it going on inside our own atmosphere here. It's, it's what often, I mean, what's been reported at Hesdalen and what, what we're seeing down in the American Southwest takes a much closer look by atmospheric physicists and uh, plasma physicists, I think. Uh, there's some serious work hmm. that needs to be done there. Can they mm-hmm. tell how long that behavior takes place? And then, and then what happens? Does it just sort of dissolve? Or is it a short-lived, quote-unquote, lifespan or, or what? Well, well, some of these things last for tens of minutes. They'll drift around or they'll hold a position. Sometimes they'll divide into two. Uh, you can see structure in them sometimes. There will be a, a ball with several other balls rotating inside of them. Um, they make a very interesting laboratory for, for trying to understand mo- mobile light phenomena, knowing that there are probably several different kinds, to be able to go to places where they're specifically happening, like Hesdalen or like the site in the southwest is, is a really helpful way to get studies in. Uh, we've worked on a, a, a technique for gathering spectral data on mobile light phenomena using just diffraction grading and uh, a zoom on, a, on an analog camera, and you can see spectral bands that way, and that's helpful in at least seeing what these things are emitting, what bandwidth they're emitting. And, Do they uh, imitate objects? Other, other, uh, not, you know, it's interesting because uh, Teodorani did a paper. He, he was out there for a week or ten days, and he, he found one. He was during while he was testing his equipment. One manifested on on, on film. Um, it was a red light, and it turned out to be the same spectrum as a, a laser sighting tar- a, a, a sighting laser for a, a weapon. Um, and so he kept an eye on that one. <laughs> it's, it's right near a military reservation, and, and there's a number of uh, military testing sites around. And, and the site itself is very unusual. Uh, the, the native people um, venerate it highly. There's a lot of rock art there, and uh, pretty much you can go there any night and see it. It's Erling Strand from uh, Hesdalen, and I met there at one point, and he told me it was like Hesdalen on steroids. So <laughs> it's very active. When know. you saw lights, um, red lights or orange lights, you said you saw? Right, right. Uh, uh, both. Did you have a feeling about it? Or, I mean, what goes along with just the sighting? Any, any sort of feeling or any anything else, an intuition? <laughs> anything? Well, you know, it's funny that you asked that, Jeremy, because I've taken teams out there a couple of times, and the hardest thing to do is to pick up your camera and actually take a shot of the darn thing. Uh, you, you stand there and you look, there, for example, on the edge of the canyon, there's a, uh, and it's not a big canyon, it's just a little, little place, and along the row, uh, on the edge, there's a row of red lights that uh, repeat. There's five of them, and they show up in the same spot, and they just light up in a row, and they, they, they glow for a little while, and then they go out. And literally, you look at them, they're gone, and then you look at it again, and they're there. And um, uh, and so they have a frequency of appearance and disappearance. And for all the world, they look like they're mounted on the outside of a building. It's the strangest thing. And um, so you stand there and you look at them. You got your camera in your hand. People are standing there next to you, going, "This is what we drove all the way out here for, 600 miles and more in some cases." And um, you know, and everybody's standing there, and nobody's picking the camera up. Their chins are on their chest, just going, "My goodness, what is that?" And uh, and and it happens there all the time. Uh, there's a certain kind of an apathy almost that, that comes over you. It's a very strange. Uh, it could be related to electrical charge in the area. Um, it's just a, a very unusual sensation that, that comes with being there and looking at all of this. And um, it, it's, it's surreal in some ways, but, but you, you, psychologically, it's hard to keep your mind on, on data collection when this stuff is happening. What would you be able to gather from that if you did take a picture of it? Wouldn't everyone just go, well, okay, that's a light? 
Well, well, the whole point is to, for, for example, if you capture data in the visual spectra using multimedia, right? You use an analog camera, you use digital cameras, uh, use different um, uh, video systems. Uh, along with that, you might use uh, uh, detectors of one kind or another for ultra-high frequency and ultra-low frequency and every bandwidth in between you can look at. You might get a magnetometer involved. Um, uh, you might try radar, um, although it's really tough to get a permit to operate right, radar over solid ground. And this area has F-16s flying over all the time, so we're, we're all a little bit nervous about turning on a small ground radar and scaring them to think they're being shot at. Um, so... Uh, but but there are other types of detection equipment that you can bring to bear in the situation and, and eventually get, get some kind of parameters in terms of what this thing does, what bandwidth it, it emits in, um, perhaps how, how it functions energetically. And how many um, times have you gone out there? I've been out there probably seven times, six, in, seven times. In six or seven times, you... It, I don't want. I don't want to say it didn't dawn on you to pick up your camera, but you know, it, whatever that oh, oh, the force no, no. of oppression is, didn't have you. Pick it, up it, your it's the, it's there. I, I'm, I'm not saying I didn't get data. I'm saying that I, I've stood there with other people before and and not been able to pick up the camera and do it. It's challenging, but but I've been able to do it, and, and others have too. Um, uh, there there um, there are a number of Earthlight researchers who've been to this location and collected photos and video as well. Uh, and, it, and not all of it's the same. It, 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 there's there's variable phenomena as, as well as recurring phenomena. So, and have you been able uh, to make sense of the data yet? Well, you know, it, it's not really. You can collect it and you can look at it, and then you scratch your chin. And you go, "Geez, I, I think we need some other instrumentation. We need to look more closely." Uh, for example, there's a lot of barium in the ground underneath the the, the, the site. Uh, there's there's an ex, there's an elevated radiation count. The ambient radiation there is a little bit higher. Um, 55 or so uh, uh, millirems versus uh, the, the standard background, which is a little bit lower than that. Um, Maybe radon leaking out of the ground. It could be could be something uh, related to that. Um, so, so there's there's puzzling aspects of the area. It's extremely inhospitable out there. It's 125 degrees in, in uh, for six months out of the year. And and I've been out there, and you just literally get heat stroke. You walk around for five minutes, and it's the humidity index is just unsafe. Uh, is there no getting close to so, these lights, or do you have to be a distance away? Yeah, you can you can you can get close to the locations where they recur and just just take it out until they show up. And almost every evening, I mean, I've never been there when we did didn't see phenomena, and they're more visible at night, of course, because they're light phenomena for the most part. But I mean, do they do they show up in the same part of the day? Do they show up in the same spot so that you can actually walk up to that spot, or Some, or no? Some do, but like that row of red lights I was speaking of, you can you can stake out that spot underneath, right underneath them, and and look right into the darn things. Huh. Um, and the, so, how, uh, and how far other, away are they when you're right underneath them? Would you say probably thirty, forty feet at the most above you? Uh, they're above you, maybe maybe thirty feet. Um, it, it's it's a row, and it's uh, they're equidistant. They they show up in the same spot, and if you just sit there and look, they'll be there. Um, and and they come in the evening. And usually it's after dark when, when they're when they're prominent and visible. I've never seen those type phenomena during the day. I've seen other things occur during the day that are kind of bizarre, but but uh, uh, those those occur in the evening after dark. Uh, but they don't um, respond uh, to you in know, any the, sort of way with an intelligence. You know, I haven't tested them too much. You know, I pointed a laser light at them and didn't get any response. I had a had a laser pointer and uh, pointed that at it. I thought I got it and I didn't get a response out of it. Um, others have done similar things with other similar phenomena and have gotten responses out of one kind or another. Changes in frequency and uh, intensity, that kind of stuff. Um, 
they're really unusual. I've had a very hard time getting um, higher level research out there, you know, in terms of getting people to to like come out there and um, bring a, 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 a larger battery of equipment and uh, um, some film and actually take an interest in it. It's been very difficult. To, I've known about this place for 10 years, and I haven't been able to get anybody to really actually get up and go and look at it. That's so insane to me. Um, I mean, here Paul it Denver is. There it is. Some of the other like, I know, I know. I, I was there with a team at one point. There's a lot of rock art, as I mentioned, pe- petroglyphs. And the older the, the older rock art is usually pecked into the stone rather than scratched. So you have these ancient peck things, and a lot of those are worn down. So you can only see them at the twilight when the shadows are just right on the rock faces. And there's been people there doing this for probably 6,000 years. And so there's an archaeologist there, and he's a specialist in rock art. And he's looking at all this rock art, and he sees us with our cameras. And I go over and I talk to him, and I tell him we're there documenting these life phenomena. And he kind of stands there, and he scratches his chin for a bit, and he looks at me, and he goes, you don't suppose that rock art has anything to do with the lights, do you? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I'm, I'm sitting here, and there's there's layouts, stone layouts, where, this light, where light phenomena repeat. Mm-hmm. They have a big stone spiral that they've made, and right in the middle of it is where this one type of phenomenon that repeats just kind of spurts out of the ground. You've got to be looking right at it when it happens. It's really quick, but, but it's there. And uh, a lot of this rock art is obviously rayed circles, <laughs> circles with rays coming off of them. Some are attached to each other. Some are free. You know, uh, There's a lot of other stuff there, too, but, but uh, you know, it's clear that, that the lights are figured prominently to this day, the native people go there. I, I go there with a lot of respect, and, and I'm very careful about who I tell where this place is. And, uh, and at the same time, there's something very important there, and we all need to go and take a look. Uh, those of us who are really able to make some kind of determination what's happening need to go there and look at it. So what what is the native lore about it? Um, well, it, it involves spirits and, and shamanistic belief systems that are stacked around it. Um, the, the site goes back if, uh, to the Hohokam people, which are kind of the ancient ones. They were the precursors to the Anasazi and, and, and the other peoples that lived in the, the southwest at the time. And that's just in the last seven, eight hundred, nine hundred years, thousand years. Uh, like I said, the site's been occupied for 6,000 years, so I don't know who all has been there. Um, but, but there's been a lot of people there that, that uh, have... have Paid attention to that site. There's also a Christian, a, a bunch of Christian monks that live in the, the near vicinity that, that are kind of related to the uh, relate their um, belief structure around the, the light phenomena that occur out there. So it, it manifests even in the modern age. Um, <laughs> well, this conversation but, is taking a turn. Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. Well, you know, it, I would just love somebody to actually take me seriously and slap a few bucks down and let's 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 go over and take a look at it because it, it, they won't be disappointed. Yeah, it's right Literally, there. Just, I mean, it's not going anywhere. It's been there for thousands of years. Yeah. You'd think people would be jumping it, at the it, chance it, to get there. That yeah yeah you, you'd think you you you'd think Jeremy you'd think and and um, and at the same time you know there's a lot of good work could be done. Uh, it, it, like I said, it makes a good laboratory to look at other to, to lay the foundations for how to look at other phenomena. Uh, well, if Dr. Tyler Cokejohn is listening to this particular episode, uh, call up one of your colleagues and let's get some uh, let's get some of that university cash thrown Ted Rose way. Like I said, it could be related to archaeology or anthropological studies of uh, whatever. You know, um, the whole thing is it's pretty broad band. But the bottom line is, what the heck are these lights, and why are they manifesting, and what does that mean to to the people that live there? So you said you had other strange experiences there. Is that something you could talk about? Um, uh, yeah, a little bit. Uh, just just in that, you know, you you have a group of researchers and. 
they're confronted by by something they don't know what it is, and they're smart, and they they've got some composure, uh, and and yet you live with them for a week straight. Uh, there's no bathrooms out there. It's it's rough living. It's hot, uh, rattlesnakes, all kinds of dangerous stuff, and and. Uh, and on top of it, you're trying to do data collection. You need to know how far away things are. So, you know, you have to walk over to, to a certain tree with your with your GPS so you can make a waypoint and see where it is. And there's a lot of coordinated effort and work that goes into it. And at times, um, the, the site sort of has this ability to dampen everybody. To, they, they almost get a little bit stupid. And uh, the uh, and then, then they dream. Um, and you, it's hard to tell whether it's the stress of the environment that they're in and, and, and the, the inability. Uh, trying to stay, it's a very monotonous environment. It's a desert. It's just a flat, bacon desert and um, hot and uh, ugly to a lot of eyes, I suppose. Uh, and to sit and pay attention and wait for these things to show up is, is challenging uh, to keep your consciousness in one place. And, and so people's heads bend around a bit. And, um, and, and it happened to me, too, uh, uh, and you start thinking you're seeing things, and you start thinking you're hearing things, um, and then sometimes bizarre things happen. Like I, I'm driving down the road in the back in the middle of nowhere. I've got a, got a brand new Jeep Cherokee with brand new tires. I blow out the right rear tire. Uh, it's 122 degrees or something outside. I get out. I change the tire. Um, I, I turn the car around. I see three orange lights flashing over the top of a hill, and I turn to look at them. And they're, they're, they're plasma discharges, like what we see. They're sort of amorphous in form. And this whole site has kind of got a dome of them over it. If you're just watching it day or night, it's right there. You can see it right from the highway once you know what to look for. And uh, so I see these three flashes. I drive probably another 50 yards in the same tire, uh, only the, uh, um, the spare blows out. And uh, so I'm sitting out there in the middle of nowhere, 122 degrees heat with my cell phone running out of juice and, and no tires to run my car on. Uh, and these lights are going off around me in the process, and I'm going into heat stroke. You know, <laughs> you know and uh, I, uh, I'm, with, I'm with a woman who used to work with the uh, SRI uh, remote viewing teams, and uh, she, she's all worried about somebody coming down the road in an old pickup truck and if they have bad intent. And eventually the people that found us or the people we met in the bar who were EMTs and volunteers who came looking for us when they, when uh, Maricopa County uh, declared us, you know, out there. Uh, and they showed up in an old pickup truck with nothing but good intentions. So huh. uh, kind of weird, weird stuff, you know, synchronistic kind of strange things. Um, and some of the dreams I've heard about from some of the team members who've been a bit unsettling too. Uh, involving more intelligences and this kind of stuff, but the imagination can be a little bit strong when you're out in the middle of nowhere and looking at stuff you can't really put a handle on anyway. Jeff Ritzman? Well, is it my turn already? Yes, sorry. Uh, (laughs) No, that's okay. Uh, While while we're on the subject of this place, um, Ted, when you've been out there, has there been any different reactions either from you or from people with you based on whatever the color is of the light that you're seeing? And its proximity. I mean, is there a difference in, I guess, the physical effect or the emotional effect based on what color it is? You know, I, ha- I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that. And there's quite a variance. They can be white, yellow, red, green. Um, uh, some of them are light. Some of them are, are, are like look like sheet lightning almost. Um, uh, they they can have different manifest in different ways, and uh, they're energetic systems. I don't know what they are. Uh, uh, some people are don't have the composure when they see it to to stick to the data collection protocols 
Um, and it takes it takes seeing it a few times in order to to really do that. And I guess that's really what I was trying to say. I've had teams out there that it took looking at it for for a day or two before they could really start getting the cameras clicking and getting the data collection going. Well, yeah, when we're talking thirty, forty feet, I can understand yeah. that to a degree. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, you know, and some of some of it is even more interesting in that that when we look at speed, um, uh, thirty frames per second, sometimes we see small lights that actually move through the group. They come right into the group and leave again, um, and but you only catch them at, at, at a, um, looking at frames per second uh, type. Huh? Examinations. You don't you don't, see, you don't see that with the naked eye. No, no, no. There there are some that you don't see with the naked eye, but if you've got a camera set up and you just go back and review your data, sometimes something pops up in there that's clearly tracking through the, the space that you're standing in. Uh, huh. And I don't know. I don't know what these things are. You know, it, uh, uh, I've seen a couple of things that are kind of provocative. And when you when you actually go around and talk to the local people there, they've got stories for you uh, that, that do, don't seem to leave the area, but are rather, um, like I said, provocative. Uh, get you thinking. Um, is, is there anything about the place or the people that live there that is similar to what uh, I don't know Marley Woods? That what we've heard about that. I mean, is is do you have uh, and weird animals, um, you know, any of that skinwalker type stuff? Is any of that going on in that area? You know, I, I I'm not sure how all of that coincides with the local beliefs. Okay. Um, uh, I do know that there is a, a, a broad scope of experiences that are related to the site. Uh, one fella told the story of riding his motorcycle out there and crashing and breaking his leg, and encountering people who came and talked to him until help came. And help came in the form of a synchronicity. It wasn't that anybody knew he was out there, but it was exactly who they told him was coming. So there was a, um, he had some sort of a shamanic type experience there or, you know, it, it was it was significant to him anyway, an altered state of consciousness that he felt was significant related to being in that area. I remember that one story rather clearly. And uh, I remember uh, going into the bar with this other researcher and playing devil's advocate, and she's kind of asking about it. And I sat over there and kind of, yeah, sure, whatever, drank my beer, almost got myself beat up by some some big biker boys. Uh, we're drinking the other end of the bar there because they'd seen stuff, you know, and I was I was being kind of scornful to, to just sort of stimulate and see what the, what the emotional charge that that site has for the people there. And it certainly does have a – they've all seen things out there. What about – I mean, you mentioned that some of these lights have structure to them. In other words, some lights going inside of other lights and all of that. Is there, has there been anything yeah. that's, that's decidedly geometric beyond a light? I mean, are we are we seeing boxes? Are we seeing triangles, squares, anything like that going on? Some reports are. I haven't seen anything in particular that tells me of a structure um, in the observations I've had, but I've been told by others who've seen things there that were more solid um, or seem to be more solid. Uh, and uh, uh, a lot of it, too, uh, when, you're, when you're reviewing your data, you have to understand how your camera collects data because you'll get lights that look square. That aren't square, you know. Um, right, exactly. That, you know, so so you need to understand what your camera is grabbing and to make sure it's a good idea to get a microphone, a voice-activated microphone, and uh, talk while you're taking your your video. So you have the video camera collecting audio data, and then you also have a second audio confirming what you're doing. 
I'm taking a picture, I'm using this camera, I'm here's first exposure exposure to I see a blah 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 and they can hear the camera clicking in the background so then they can researchers can come back later and check the sequence of the clicks against what the the, the audio is describing so you get a little secondary test. Right, right. In real time. Um, what are we talking about? I mean, about at this place ge- geologically. I mean, has there been significant surveys done to to talk about what what is in the ground or what possibly is in the ground or the surrounding areas? Or, I mean, how is it different from surrounding areas? I guess I should say geologically. There, well, there's an unusual amount of barium under the site. And, and what, uh, what what would that mean to this? That I may mean, have a commonality. I mean, as well, far as it's it's a very very dense dense metal that radio radioactive. You know, it, it could okay. create um, uh, anomalies, EM anomalies, gravitational anomalies, uh, things like that, or change the environment locally in a way that might or organize charges and particles. Uh, of course, this is all speculative, but but it's, it's one way to think about about certain the presence of certain minerals. Um, uh, it, it could have an effect on the local environment, which stimulates certain um, activities that occur in the visual spectrum, certain types of phenomena, um, and be natural, just, just the presence of this large concentration of this particular metal in this particular area. Um, that's one, one potential out of it. There's a, um, it, it could be something else entirely. I mean, uh, I've been out there with people who are a little less scientific, a little less... Um, Technical, I suppose, and they, a lot of folks say it's a gateway. They say it's a it's a gate. It's things come and go through it, and I really can't argue them. I mean, I, I stand out there and look looked at it, and it looks like things are coming to the site and leaving it. You know, so you, you know, you scratch your chin, and that uh, it, it may not be what it looks like is my point, but it looks kind of like that. Um, I I don't know what would be transiting through it, and I I don't know whether that would be uh, you know a technical thing or a natural thing. I I don't know. We more work needs to be done, but it's right there. Anybody can go to it. It's 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 um, one interesting thing. I I went to UC Berkeley and looked at uh, or UC uh, Santa Cruz and checked out their maps and found a map of the area, the section map of the area, and the place had been taken off the maps. The um, the site had a name at one point, and that name had been removed from any subsequent maps. Huh. And uh, I can find it, you know, on on Google Maps or whatever, Google Satellite, no trouble at all. I, I can GPS right to it and know exactly where it is. But right. but uh, it, um, again, it's a native place. It, it's important to, to people, so we, we try to go there with some respect. And um, we're not there to disprove anybody's beliefs. We're certainly not there to get in the way of anybody's practices. You know, right, uh, right. And and uh, tried not to put the location of this site out very far. And anybody that I got involved with, we'd have to have a caveat in terms of controlling the location of this site. Uh, sure, agreement uh, not to not to do that a non-disclosure agreement. And, and, and but by doing that, you get access to a very very interesting place. It's yeah. I've never seen anything like it. Um, so. Well, what, when Ted, when you're talking about these lights, I mean, one of the things that I asked uh, that I asked uh, Ted Phillips was about the lights in Marley Woods. Uh, you know, he's talking about very, very close proximity lights that are close to the ground, close to trees, close, close to other stationary objects. And I asked him, do they cast light? And he said, no. Uh, and I find that to be highly that strange. Sound po- that doesn't uh, yeah. sound possible. No, it really. doesn't. If it's an omni, if it's an omni light, it's chances are it's going to be throwing, you know, indirect lighting everywhere. So what do you see in this place? Do you see this thing? lighting up the desert floor or the edge of a mountain range or anything like that? Or is it so localized that you don't see that? 
Well, you know, because of the color spectrum that comes off of these things, sometimes it's hard to tell. The, the, the crapper rail out there is about 20 feet high, and these things appear right above it. And, and uh, if there was ever a candidate for a fire, it would be right there, and these things don't seem to start fires. They don't, they don't seem to be emitting heat. And uh, uh, when, you, when you look at them, they, um, um, uh, uh, they, they, they're obviously emanating light in that spectrum where you wouldn't see them. Right, and the same thing goes for Marley Woods. If they weren't, if they weren't giving off photons, then you wouldn't see them. And the question is, what spectrum are they giving it off in? And that might give you a clue in terms of what what they might be or or where where to begin looking. Uh, and the Marley Woods are no different than anything else, uh, but except that the behavior of those lights there, I think, is, is a little bit strange compared to what we see out there. Um, uh, the, if you, correct me if I'm wrong, but they they almost seem serpentine when you look at the, the videos of them. They have a um, they're, they're move. They move. They're mobile. I guess is my point. Yeah, yeah. Well, they I think a lot of them. Well, I mean, one of the things that he had said was, um, you know, what I had always said about like the Marfa lights in Texas is like, you know, you watch the specials about these things for years, and you see the people mm-hmm. all standing on a particular piece of ground where they observe these lights, but no one wants to get on a four wheeler and barrel ass over the hill after them. Uh, but well, you know, that, Ted, Ted Ted had actually done that at one point. And he said, literally, they drove up to the point that they did a roundabout on these lights, and the man observing them from point A, uh, when they got to point B, which is where the lights were, they saw nothing. The man says, they're right on you. You're, they're right there. And they could not see hmm. them, which indicates hmm. you know, a directional viewpoint only. Yep. Uh, yep. Do you see yep. that in this location, that it's only a directional well, viewpoint? Well, you know, we, we've, we've done night watches from um, uh, a mile away, watching it uh, from a couple of directions as well, sitting on the site looking outward. Um, and we see things from every angle, pretty much. Okay. Um, they're they're 360, 360-degree black body radiators anyway. they got light any direction you see them from. Um, and uh, uh, the properties are unusual sometimes, but, but uh, they're clearly not taillights from vehicles. They're not reflections off the side of semis. They're not, uh, you know, they're independent quantum systems. I don't know what they are. Um, we need to look closer. And, I, I, um, and, and the beauty of this thing is that you don't have to go chase them over the Craparal like Marfa where these things appear from miles away. These things, right, right. these lights, this site are right there. You can walk right up to the darn things. Um, I never would have believed it until I was actually taken out there. I didn't, I didn't believe that there were such places until I was actually taken out there. Oh, I can totally believe it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, if one were to to put itself down on the yeah. ground and you were to stand beside it, how big do you think it would be? Have you been able to triangulate how large the objects actually are? They're variable. Some are quite small. Some are you know a couple inches across, but they're luminous. Um, and oh. others are are beach ball size. Others are larger than that. Um, hmm. I saw a particular phenomenon in the middle of the day, right at high noon. It looked like a, a sheet sheet metal. It looked like a sheet lightning. It was. Uh, um, coming up the ravine, and, and it came out. Uh, there was sort of a discharge between it and the ground, and it traveled another four, five hundred yards up until it, it was in front of us, and then it just went out. And uh, when we looked at it at thirty frames per second, what we saw was a, like a line of lightning that had a terminus uh, on both ends, and you know just a, just a line of light that was vibrating up and down fast enough that your eye would see it as a rectangle. But the camera, that um, slow pace, saw it as an individual line. So. Huh. Uh, I don't know what it is. I can tell you I saw it, and I can tell you the properties. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Um, Looked at by some fairly smart people, Dr. Keynes. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, When you're talking about the movement of these things, um, 
well, I'll tell you, there's an area not far from me where uh, I've observed lights not unlike this, although they are some distance away. Um, and I can remember one event in particular where you know these things basically came up out of the trees, and there's trees and forestry for several, several acres uh, from the vantage point that I look. These were predominantly orange and white lights that would come up out of the trees. They illuminated the tops of the trees when I saw them. And on one particular occasion, I was videotaping them, and one of them shot up to the left and then to the right, abrupt, literally the right angle job. Um, And it looked like a smooth light to the eye. But when I put the videotape in and I watched it, uh, it was a dash it did not register as the fluid movement that I'd seen with my eyes. It was strictly a uh, – it literally looked like a perforated piece of paper, you know, right up across the screen. Um, have you guys seen right. lights out there and recorded them and had that sort of effect where it doesn't seem that the frame rate of the camera is keeping up with the, the motion? Another way to look at that is that, that the um, uh, frequency of uh, light coming off of it is matching the frame rate of your camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. How how does that sound? It's that's flashing. A, that's an even more disturbing uh, proposition. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we've seen that. Yeah, and I don't have an explanation for it. There's a number of things that are out there that are interesting. Uh, we also have a bit of a problem with battery drain out there uh, when you yeah. bring packaged batteries out there or cell phone batteries or equipment batteries. Oftentimes they don't last as long as they should. Um, right. There's a couple of things going on, and the other thing, um, um, Jeff, is that that there are a number of places where these lights occur. There are a number of places, and we're documenting more all the time. Yeah. So just locating you know, where, where the stories of the lights, they need to be followed up on, of course. But, but these, are not, these sites aren't as uncommon as, as you might think. And uh, they might be related to some kind of gravitational anomaly or EM anomaly of some kind uh, or, or you know, that just sort of percolates around the Earth depending on where energetic properties shift, you know, right. or wherever boundaries, boundary areas are. Um, or they could be something more fixed and be part of the geology that's set right there, or they could be something else entirely. Has anyone uh, had very a, suspicious though? Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, ha- has anyone had a decidedly negative experience there? Because I mean, let's um, face it, Ted. You know, you're you're out in the middle of nowhere. There's not a whole lot of places to fucking run. Uh, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> well, be, be be out there with an egotistical, uh, insane, man-hating uh, person who treats you worse than the worst undergraduate. And, uh, <laughs> and 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 be out there just trying to do your best, and uh, you know that there's that's a special hell that I'm sure a lot of uh, research people can understand. Right. Um, but, yeah, but but yeah, yes, there, there's been some difficult. Um, some people have had difficult uh, dreams out there. Primarily, okay. uh, one woman. But uh, I brought a team out there, and um, she she was laying there and dreamed that there were uh, red-eyed people standing right outside her vehicle looking into it. They walked right up and looked into it at one point. And uh, there are other people who've said they've seen entities uh, out there of some kind or another, human-like, that uh, uh, the place has got juju, okay? You oh, know, yeah. I don't I don't understand it, but but it's been very special for a very long time, and there's good reason for it. And I, I'm not one to second guess anybody. I'm just collecting the stories and collecting the data. And at some point, it, like I said, it could have to do with EM emissions, natural EM emissions there that are affecting people's brain function. Sure. Um, yeah. This is something that the, the UK MOD in their Condine report talked about was that uh, certain types of emanations coming off 
of these things would cause people to hallucinate or believe they were seeing things that weren't necessarily what they were seeing. Um, I, I don't. I'm not going to quote the that report as the Bible. It, it, it paints with a broad brush, and it's quite flawed in a number of ways. But but in some ways, it was rather brave. I thought. But uh, but no one's had a, a decidedly negative experience with the lights themselves. No, no. I mean, um, you know, uh, I've had the urge to get a big lifeguard chair and a butterfly net and go out and sit in the middle until one came by. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know, uh, I, I wouldn't suggest poking one if it came up to you. I wouldn't touch it. I don't know what the charge is in these things. Uh, um, they don't They don't seem to have a problem with treetops and that sort of thing. But uh, I still, uh, uh, I don't, uh, as close as you can get to them, I wouldn't push the envelope there too much. Have you seen them actually, have you seen them actually touch stationary objects? Yeah, I've seen them, I've seen them move through trees, through, through clumps of brush. Any any trail. any any effects on that? I mean, any effects from no. on the bark of the tree or no, no, nothing, nothing like that. Yeah. Huh? Um, and in this place, I mean, you wouldn't want to throw a match unattended anywhere. Okay. This well, of course not. Just, yeah. Would just poop like that, you know. So right. if there was any heat of any kind coming off of these things, they'd have anomalous fires cropping up everywhere, and they just don't. Uh, it's it's a cold energy of some kind. Uh, it's very organized. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Very strange. Yeah. Paul Devereaux's done some work on it, and Massimo Teodorani wrote a paper on it. And if anybody's interested, they can contact me, and I'm happy to give them a link to get some oh, of that. Yeah, I'd like to read that myself. I'm on uh, Facebook, so just reach out, and I'm happy to respond. Well, that sounds like a cool place. I mean, uh, it is. It ah. is. I, I never, I never would have believed it until I went there, and then I fell in love with it. And, um, at some point, I'm going to get the right people and the right brains and, and the right. It's all going to come together. Yeah, yeah, it sounds amazing. Uh, well, to, to flip back to uh, Chalet for a second, uh, as I remember it, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It, wasn't it '97 that the, uh, uh, the the General Aeronautics Division of that company said that, uh, or of that country said that uh, UFOs were intelligent driving flying machines? I mean, uh, yeah. So they've they've said this for a while. So the French. So the French. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and uh, I mean the thing that gets me about it is, and I'm not sure if if you've met with or if you're uh, dealing with uh, uh, General Vega, Ramon Vega. Uh, is uh, I don't even know if he's still involved down there at all since, uh, since? with with Chile. Yes. Uh, no, no, no. It uh, we we dealt with uh, um, we're dealing with Ricardo Bermudez right now. Before that, it was. Uh, 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 Navarro, Ricardo Navarro, uh, Gustavo Navarro. Okay. And, uh, 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 and he was sort of their di- the director of uh, CFA before Bermudas took over. Okay. Uh, and so those those are the two directors they've had, and I, de- I deal with them, and they're they're liaison people. Um, okay. I know from about uh, once a week. It's it's pretty interesting. So. Yeah. Well, they. Um, I mean, to make a statement like that to come out and make a public statement like that. I mean, and general Vega had said, and I think former commander of FACH, um, I mean, he, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the equivalent of the air force for them. Um, right. I mean, right. he said he's personally observed UFOs, uh, or UAP on two different occasions while in yeah. the air. And so if you're getting a statement out of them like that, then it stands to reason that they've got really good data. And so yeah, the question for you is, have they given you gun camera footage? Have you seen it? Have they disclosed that to you yet? Do you think they will if they haven't? 
Well, my my understanding is that there's probably one case right now that that that's that we're we're in dialogue about involving uh, gun camera footage. Um, okay. But uh, uh, again, to do this work and to do it properly, we do it in private. Um, we just do the best we can, and then when we're ready to publish a mature uh, document, and we release that after we have some peer review internally to make sure that it re- it reaches some level of quality. Right. Um, and and uh, when we're ready, when we're ready to release release that, we we will. But um, but in general, your question is appropriate, and yes, there, there's that level of cooperation depending on the type of case and, and what's going on. Um, they, they've, they've been very good, and, and frankly, they haven't been treated so well by the U.S. government on this particular topic. So, our presence is actually rather welcomed comparatively hmm. um, to what they've dealt with before. And my understanding, as I was told by the uh, um, the Chilean team, was that uh, the U.S. State Department approved this agreement. So really. Uh, so I, 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 I'm not sure if it was just some rubber stamp back here. Nobody actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Wow. Uh, because it's it's fairly fairly blunt, and uh, uh, or whether it, it I, I don't know what standards that it comes to, but but the bottom line is this that uh, um, we're we're doing this work, we're working at this level. Um, we're certainly looking for other people that are bright that might be good investigators, particularly aviation affiliated folks, aviation sciences in particular. But right. we're open to hard sciences, sciences in general. Um, and uh, uh, this is reaching an international level now. I'm operating in a way that I, I didn't really, I sort of knew we were going to go in this direction, but now I'm here and, and it's a little different to, to actually oh, be. Oh yeah, yeah, de- yeah. Dealing with it diplomatically, and um, I get, I get. Questions, and I also ask for advice from them from time to time because I don't understand the politics down there as they're trying to do their unification and get get these teams together from different countries. I, I don't understand the hurdles because I don't know the history down there well. Right. Uh, Has their big case to you been uh, the international airport in Erica um, back in '97, the uh, 31st of March? That was a pretty pretty phenomenal sighting by the uh, the control tower and recorded on radar. Yes, they, they hit three UAPs in the air and. Um, Tracted speeds access eight thousand miles per hour. I mean, that, and they had pilot pilot witnesses there as well oh, yeah. that were in, yeah. and safe, safety issues and all of that. And that was that was really, really sort of a watershed case for them. Um, and, it, and it's a very good case. Yes, um, you get enough of these cases that are this good, and, and you have a well scored data set. And then from there, you can really start asking questions, start checking for profiles, start checking for all this other information. So, right. so yeah, that's a good case, and that really kind of opened their door. But they've had a number of them uh, going on. Uh, they've had they've had their own share of uh, UFO-type cases down there that meet the high strangeness of Heineck and crew. Um, right. Um, well, that document. that one right there. I mean, the the airport one. When you know, at least for this show, people know what I'm talking about. Guess when the objects left, folks? Three a.m. Uh, yep. <laughs> you know, uh, very very yeah. popular time of, of of night, apparently, or morning. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I'm I'm I'd be curious. Uh, do you? I don't know how to even ask this. Do you get the sense that? Something like gun camera footage or something really amazing. Uh, if you guys, I mean, like you say, you have to come to a mutual understanding of how the information will be released uh, right. in a serious way. Um, but do you get the sense from them like you might have the, I don't know, the thought about our own government where they think, and eh, we're not going to release this because of X, Y, and Z number of reasons? Um, 
everything from we may figure out how to weaponize this thing to this will cause mass panic in our country, or are they a little bit more uh, laid back about it? Is that the right word to use? I don't even know. I, I, I wouldn't say laid back. I'd say they're more dedicated to transparency. And okay. they're, they're a public organization. They're there by public mandate. They take their, their, their democracy seriously down there and uh, uh, to, to the level that they exercise it, and, and uh, particularly after what they've been through for the last number of decades, and a lot of it at the hands of the U.S. or U.S. enablement. Um, uh, so, uh, so no, they're, they're pretty dedicated to transparency. And, again, I, I offer my kudos to uh, uh, General Bermudez for, for his vision and leadership because this isn't something we could have taken the point on. Uh, this is something for somebody like him, and he certainly stepped up to, to do this. An official agreement with a group yeah. like ours is a, um, it, it, it's a, it's a rather bold statement. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and uh, if, pretty if, if you don't, if you don't want to be transparent, then that, that's not the move to make. And, and NARCAP, of course, we've dedicated ourselves to just giving out mature data. You know, it may be right. slow coming, but, but it's the best data we can put together. And sometimes we find out we're wrong. Right now, we're chewing over one of our photo cases and wondering whether maybe we uh, we've got a prosaic explanation for something that we previously thought was a UAP. Uh, we, we were presented with some very good counter research, and uh, I just love that. You know, when 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 you get to the truth of it, you know, that's what this is all about is yeah. objective, getting the answers. And, and if you're wrong, don't leave that in the data set for crying out loud. Wait, there's plenty of things that are right about other data. So, sure. sure. You know, you know, um, so if, and I, I, I accept that they're, they're at least that serious and that, that honest in their own perspective. So anything that comes to the table between us is going to be uh, respected and presented well to the world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I know you've been really – you guys have probably all been very busy with uh, the whole Chile thing. But I'm amiss if I don't ask uh, if there's been any new uh, information that's come forward out of O'Hare uh, or if anything has come to light about that case that uh, that you could tell us about. You know, there no real new developments on O'Hare. Um, okay. we, keep get, we keep getting the usual photographs of the UFO over O'Hare, you know, which is not the UFO over O'Hare for... Right, you know, <laughs> sure. As, as well you know. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, you guys helped us out on that case originally um, with some of the photo analysis there and helped kind of screen some of that nonsense out to begin with. And I actually wrote the section on photos uh, and... and it was a very short section because we didn't have anything that was authentic, and I don't think anything has come along since that's authentic, regardless of what you saw on YouTube or right. photographs. Or right. it's, we pretty much had the last word on that case. I haven't seen any new data at all Wow. That, that's of value. Sam Moranto, I speak to him from time to time, and he's also done a parallel research on this case, and he hasn't presented me with anything new from his side of the fence either. So as far as I know, we're pretty much installed as far as new data on that case goes. Um, what do you make of that, Ted? I mean, I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, there, this was not a short-lived uh, sighting. This was not like a, a short-duration sighting. Uh, I mean, for all intent and purposes, it was one of the longer ones in recent history that's that's had a, a mass sighting um, type of thing like that. I mean, how do we how do we uh, how do we lean back on that case at all uh, and say this is this was an interesting case? Even I mean. Um, well, I, I know the witnesses I spoke to were were dead on, um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I don't know what to say about that. Um, but no, I mean, photographic wise, we had one that was interesting but suspect, and the rest of yes. them were garbage. And 
Right. That's it. I mean, that's it. That's all we get. I mean, I can't imagine that there isn't more. Um, well, you know, I and I, I wonder about that too. But the further away we get from it, the colder the case becomes, and absolutely. anything that crop, and anything that crops up becomes more suspect uh, as time goes on. Then, um, the the. I think we're at a limit in terms of what we can get out of that case. We learned quite a lot. Uh, our team learned quite a lot in terms of how to put together a study. We, this thing was multinational. Like we had co- contributors from Scotland to Hawaii and Nova Scotia and everywhere else making this thing happen. And, um, and so that was a good team team building exercise for the first part of it. And the second part of it is that this UAP fit a lot of the standard aviation profile of a UAP encounter, not detected on radar. Um, uh, uh, unpredictable behavior um, and uh, uh, witnessed by ground crew and, and a number of different observers, uh, but but not by key witnesses, which happens because these things are impromptu. They just happen, and you may not be looking at anything but your next cup of coffee, you know, for that 20 minutes. Yeah, you sure. Know. Absolutely. It happens. It happens. Yeah. So. Um, uh, we, we think, we understand that there were pilots who saw this thing coming in on approach, and um, um, but they're not talking, and we're respecting that. Um, yeah. My understanding um, from conversations I've had inside the group is that there were there were pilot witnesses, but, but nobody's willing to, to step forward for career reasons and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, United put a pretty good clamp on it, and that was the United Hub where, where that thing, right? Uh, the sea terminal is the United Hub there, so... Uh, if wow. it was United Pilots, prob- probably was using those runways there, and they, they didn't talk. Um, so I, I think it, uh, in a lot of ways there are better cases out there for actual data, but that case certainly carries some interesting hallmarks, including that burning its way through the clouds the way it did. Uh, oh, yeah. It gives us some ideas of energetic properties and so on, uh, yeah. some data. Uh, it's a good example of, of uh, the UAP violating Class B restricted airspace and, and what happens when the system doesn't engage these things. Those guys were just swamped. The minute Peter Davenport went live with that story, uh, he gave us three days and then, then showed up on television and went batshit with his uh, right. proclamation about what happened out there and turned it into a feeding frenzy. We couldn't hardly talk to anybody. The, couldn't get a hold of the control tower or any of that. They were completely snowed under by by everybody and their uncle basically trying to investigate this thing. Right. Um, so we, we had to, we had other folks with other angles because of the way our organization structured that we might be able to get in. And we did do some poking around from that side. And, um, uh, and, and we formulated our study carefully from that point. But, uh, but that's one thing we definitely learned is that, that if the FAA doesn't adopt a standard in terms of how to deal with UAP and UAP reports, every time one of these things happens, it's going to have a facility that, that's going to be hindered badly. Uh, right. Oh, sure. By, by, by public interest. Yeah. Um, wow. So there's a, a lot of things that, that kind of spin off from this that, you know, uh, require some respect, I think, from the researcher community. Um, and some good thinking. Um, yeah, well, there you go. And I knew Jeremy has some dolphin questions for you. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Happy to take that on. I just swimming with some the other day, two, two days ago. I- well, actually, before we get to that, I do have one last question, which seems kind of obvious, which is um, could the, the the mystery spot where you keep seeing lights become a NARCAP project? You know, I, I, I've certainly advocated for that. <laughs> and I've had, and whenever I've gone, I've had their blessings uh, from the from the executive committee and Dr. Haynes. But uh, uh, I, I, my my reception on this particular subject's been lukewarm. You Have know, you brought Jacques Vallee or, or Haynes there? 
Uh, well, yeah, both of them have sat in on a video presentation of what we saw down there, and uh, uh, nobody was moved enough uh, to make it a priority. Uh, but I've never been firmly instructed not to, and every time I go, people want to know what I, what I saw. Uh, we've had other members of the executive committee go to uh, uh, Hestelin and take photographs of, of UAP there. Uh, Larry Lemke is one of them. So I have some advocates in the in the EAC, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it, it's uh, uh, it, no, it's not a priority for NARCAP at this point. Um, uh, but I think parallel studies there would, would be welcomed, and we'd certainly want to see the results of them. Huh. I, I, I yeah. just, I'm dumbfounded by by this. It's like, here we are talking about, you know, studying know. all it's, this it's, stuff, it's, and here's a place where they hang out. <laughs> it's right there, you know. You and think I've Jacques Vallée, of all people, would be like, oh, for crying well, out no, loud. me, oh, or whatever. If somebody, if somebody threw $5,000 at me in a plane ticket, I'd go get the answer, okay? I'd just <laughs> burrow into the place and sit there and, until I got the darn answer. And, and I've got help. I've got people like Elizabeth Rauscher, who is just a, a phenomenal scientist, and she lives not far away, and she's got a home-built magnetometer that's way beyond anything you can buy spec over, over the counter in um, science labs and stuff. I, I've got really, really bright people. I just need a little oomph to go make this thing happen. And, um, so if anybody's in earshot, you know, <laughs> contact me and we'll uh, we'll go take a look. Um, right. See but, what we uh, can do here on Paratopia yeah. to make this happen. I'm going to try. Yeah, that would, I'm going to look into this for would, you, Ted. Oh, you know, it's a lot of pain. It's been a lot of pain thinking about it because, you know, you're, it's a perfect lab. It's a perfect place to take this on. You know? So we'll find out. We'll find out what he says. Uh, well, here's something that I never thought we'd talk about on, on the show, which is dolphins. Dolphins. Isn't that that special? That's right. Uh, In fact, I would probably only ever talk to you about this. Um, And my question is, there seems to be this movement uh, to give dolphins human rights. Uh, And I'm wondering, since you're not a New Age Fruit Loop, but you uh, are, I I consider you an authority who swims with the dolphins, uh, what what do you make of that? Is that realistic? How sentient are these are these dolphins? I don't think there's any question. I don't think there's any question at all, and, and they, they certainly should be treated as equals. You certainly can't eat them. They're not a resource. Um, they're absolutely poisonous as far as mercury and PCBs, but the fact is they're very, very intelligent, and uh, once we learn how to talk to them, we're going to find out just how bright they really are. And uh, uh, I, I, don't under, I don't imagine that we're ever going to learn how to communicate with aliens. And this is a quote from John Lilly. I'm, this is not my, my idea. John Lilly said this years and years ago. I don't know how we can uh, think that we're going to communicate with aliens if we can't communicate with whales and dolphins, um, because they certainly are bright enough to talk to. And um, they deserve every bit of our attention and, and advocacy to protect them and to understand them better and learn more about what they are and who they are and how they do what they do. Uh, they are amazing. There's no question about it. I, I'm not going to give them, you know, new age psychic attributes or any other nonsense. They're, they're, they're animals. They live in a complex world. They have difficult lives. And, and I, I have the privilege of swimming with them on a very regular basis. Uh, but there's somebody in there and we can talk to them. And we, should, we should learn how to do it. Um, I think that would be a big step for humanity to, to get over itself a little bit and uh, learn how to do this. And if we could do that, I'm sure that any alien presentation that came our way, we would be on a much better footing to deal with it. So uh, did it take you a while to get to thinking that way about them, or was it immediate? Well, you know, I, I, I heard the party line around this. People have been saying nice things about dolphins for decades, but, but it wasn't until I 
I had them face to face and experienced their empathy and experienced their playfulness and uh, experienced them dying. Um, I've been around the whole life cycle around these guys, their babies, all of that. That I've come to understand that there's, and it didn't take too long. I'm a fairly empathic person. Uh, but I'm a free diver. I spend a lot of time in deep water. I'm down there 70 or 80 feet without tanks, living the way they live, swimming next to them, watching the way they do what they do. And uh, they're very, very bright, uh, very bright. Uh, and they are communicative and playful. And I've had them go with me to 40 meters, and I've had the whole team of 30 or more of them swim me back to the surface and make sure I got out there. Um, very empathetic. And, uh, and I've had incredible play experiences with them as well. So. So there's no question that we need to look a lot more closely at dolphins. I understand that they're developing a, a computer that can start interpreting dolphin call a little bit. Um, I'm having this vision of Mars attacks, though. But, you know, the, the whole thing is, is there, there is somebody in there, and we, we, I, I think uh, humans would... Uh, uh, they may not want to hear what, what dolphins have to say, but I think that they need to learn how to listen to More so than, than say, a dog or a cat? I, you know, I, I advocate treating every being on this planet with a great deal of respect and, and care. And, uh, uh, and cats and dogs have proven themselves over and over again that they're sentient to a pretty high level and, and that they, they deserve our respect and they get it a lot of, by, by the majority of us to some level. But uh, I think that uh, humans, to, to actually formally recognize a being as, uh, as more than an animal um, would be a big step uh, for us uh, in our own humility, in our own humanity. Uh, it would be a big step. If I could interject here, I think uh, a cat uh, is a great animal, and I love cats. I have a dog, and I love dogs. But does it take a great deal of, of – uh, <laughs> does, it, does it take a, a great deal of conjecture here to decide that probably what cats would have to say with us would start with F and end with U? I mean, <laughs> just to look at a cat, you half the time when you look at a cat, they're just looking at you like, you know what? Go fuck yourself. And I just, uh, I, I, you know, I, dolphin, I'd way rather talk to a dolphin. I mean. Uh, well, you know, they, dolphins say that, too. Dolphins yeah. say that, too. I've got it in my face. I don't mean, use a finger, but you get the message pretty quick. You know, when a dolphin has had enough of you, he'll tell you. And believe me, you'll, you'll hear it. But, but no, to answer your, your, your perspective there, I, I, I'm a pretty empathic guy. And I grew up with cats. And I learned a lot about them, and I can understand why people would think of them as aloof, but um, but they really are team players. You just have to learn to speak the same language and learn to be sensitive to what you're looking at. Uh, they, they speak with their body language as much and their eyes as much as their voices. So you have to have a broadband sensitivity to what they're saying. And this really kind of goes at the heart of my freediving perspective, which is shamanic. The real key to understanding. One-to-one exchanges between animals, like like men and dolphins, for example, you have to be very present in the moment. And the freediving practice lowers your heart rate, heart rate, it uh, lowers your blood pressure, and it brings you into the moment very clearly. And when that happens, your intuition is higher. And when you encounter something like a dolphin or any being, really. Um, you stop being a man, and it stops being a dolphin, and information moves between you in a very magical way, and very broadband way, and you can understand intent and attitude just by body posture and a look. Um, I have photographs of dolphins on my um, Facebook page, Everblue Freediving, my Facebook page, um, and, and clearly you can see in their body language what they're communicating. 
uh, and that they are communicating. And the same thing goes for cats. The same thing goes for dogs. People say, oh, my dog's stupid, you know. Uh, you know, a dog is a dog, you know. They, they, if you provide community and you live with a dog and you communicate with a dog, you know that they have emotional intelligence. And that emotional intelligence is really what endears them to us, their, 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 their attention and commitment and loyalty. Um, and, and, you know, every being is wired a little bit differently. Cats are a little different with their attention and their loyalty and the way they do it. But, but you know, it, once you learn how to see that, then, then all bets are off in terms of judgment calls. Uh, um, I, I, I stopped thinking I knew what, what animals were smart and which ones weren't a long time ago. Is that why you, uh, you free dive as opposed to scuba dive? Is it uh, yeah. all about the heart rate and, and the breathing and getting into the, the zone? Yes, ab- absolutely. You, you you go into the mammalian diving reflex, and it, it's an altered altered physical and psychological state. And like I said, you get very present in the moment. It's a very zen state, and um, and it's extremely powerful. And you can bring it up on land and use it there too. So, have you, you uh, have you, talked, you have you talked to scuba divers? I mean, do you have um, yeah vastly different experiences than than a scuba diver as a result? Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you're learning to manage your breath. You know, you're learning to hold your breath for minutes at a time. You're learning to swim to 100 feet and then tour around. Um, so your mind has to be in a different place in order to do this with comfort and, and to fly through the water the way an eagle flies through the air and, and, and to engage and encounter whatever you might encounter. I've, I've run into big tiger sharks. I've run into marlin. I've run into itty-bitty little fish that bit holes in my wetsuit. <laughs> you know, there's all kinds of things there, so you have to kind of manage your psychology accordingly to uh, um, to, to be in that place, and, and, and it just takes you there. I've never seen anything like it. It, it literally just moves you into the present. Uh, there's no past. There's no future. You're, you get very broadband, and uh, eventually you learn how to swim through a school of fish, and they hardly move out of the way. Uh, you integrate with the environment at a very fundamental level, and it's a great practice. Yeah. It's a mind-body discipline, very similar to yoga, and we use a lot of the same yoga breathing. Now, I don't know if we've talked about this on the show, but you've told me privately that uh, when you run into sharks, you charge the shark. You head toward the shark. Uh, when you first did that, now, of course, you do that because it takes him out of his instinct, and he goes, uh, why is this piece of meat <laughs> uh, coming toward me and not afraid of me? And so he's got to rethink his game plan. Uh, did you know that when you first did that, or or was it a happy ending to an experiment? <laughs> well, it's a little bit of both, but uh, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't quite phrase it that way. But but I I learned from swimming with fish how they show submissive, passive postures and how they show aggressive postures. And anytime you know a shark isn't just swimming up and tearing you to pieces, he's asking you a question. He comes in, he'll broadside you. He'll show you his blank, and he'll go around in a circle and look at you. And at the time, he's telling you, I don't know what you are, uh, but right now I'm not attacking you, and I'd appreciate it if you didn't take a bite out of me. And uh, and so he'll make this maneuver, and at this point, this is where you show him your blank. Um, you, you show him your broadside or your belly. Um, just stretch out. you got these big, long freediving fins, and you show them your belly, and uh, and then they'll circle around you a little bit. Uh, if they're getting Tigers, in particular, like to bump you, and you don't want them close to you. You don't want them behind you. So so uh, you don't want to be afraid to rush them a little bit or growl at them or T-bone them a little. You don't want to hurt them because they'll turn around and bite you. They're catty that way. Um, but, uh, but generally speaking, um, um, most of the time, they're not going to close with you. Uh, and if they do, most of the time, it's not because they want to hurt you. We had two paddle boards bitten. Uh, a couple of days ago up coast here, uh, shark swam up, bit the paddleboard, swam away, didn't even try and get the person on the paddleboard. 
Um, um, they just do that, you know, and, and it's not aggression. They're just exploring, and, and anything that's floating has a certain allure to it. So the main, main way to deal with tigers is to keep moving, be, be moving, look like there's whatever calories they get out of it would come at a risk, you know. And uh, <laughs> so, so, um, so, Ted, are they the killing machines that everybody makes them out to be, that media makes them out to be? I mean, are they? Not. No. Absolutely not. No, not at all. Not at all. It, you can get yourself killed by a shark, and you can have too much bravado in this read, what you're looking at. And, uh, um, and, and it, you certainly can um, get hurt by them. But, uh, but no, they're not. Um, for example, uh, there's an ad out um, recently called Rethink the Shark, and I wish I could remember the name of the organization and plug them because it's really bright commercial. It's about a minute long. It starts with the, the scene from Jaws where everybody's stampeding out of the water back up onto the beach after they think they've seen a shark attack. Right. So they all pile up back in the beach, and they turn around and they look out, and there's a toaster floating out there, and you're hearing, dum, 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 And then the caption is, last year, 791 people were killed by defective toasters, and nine people were killed by sharks. Right. We think the shark, you know, and that's the whole point. You know, they're very, very important. They're very ancient uh, and, and um, uh, poorly understood and, and definitely misunderstood animal. Peter Benchley wrote Jaws in his dying days, regretted writing it, and said so. Because of the impact it had on these these beings, um, sharks. Are, there was a time when the, the most common animal in the sea was some form of shark, um, in the, in the in the great eras, uh, the great epochs of, of the past, and the Devonian and so on. There were more sharks, more cartilaginous fish than there were any other type of fish in the sea, and, and they're quite ancient. Um, and uh, uh, but they're they're not. There's nothing automatic about these guys. Uh, I, I, they don't. They aren't instinct. That, that, that's a catch-all word, and if you ever purge anything from your natural history dictionary, purge the word instinct, because it just doesn't mean anything. Um, they're sophisticated. They're complex. And uh, uh, and they'll show you, you know, I, I've seen video of, you know, 17-foot great whites going by a diver and showing them their belly. Um, curious. Come in and investigate. But they don't want to hurt you. They're just they're curious, and they can have a completely unmenacing behavior to it. Um, you do you have, do you have a relationship with some of those that, that you would with a dolphin? I mean, do you have that same kind of... Uh, it's, very, uh, it's very different. Yeah. It's different. It's not the same as a dolphin. A dolphin's a mammal. We have a, we have a genetic connection to, to dolphins that, that's a lot closer on the DNA chain than one of okay. the sharks. Uh, but, but, again, it's a matter of learning the language. You know, fish and birds are very similar in that they do a lot of display and some vocalizing. But a lot of it's physical display. Um, huh. Different postures, different stances, and so on are the ways that they communicate sign language. And uh, fish do much of the same thing. And, and if you look at a lot of my photo albums, you'll see fish communicating to each other. You'll see them. They'll be flexing their fins and turning their broadsides and fanning and all of this stuff. It's all complex behavior and particularly interesting when it's between species, different species. And you'll see different groups of completely different animals together um, communicating and displaying for each other. And it's very, very intriguing. And dolphins, of course, will do this with humans. Okay. I mean, I was amazed. We went, uh, we went on a cruise several years ago to uh, to the Caribbean, and and one of the islands we stopped off of, you could go snorkeling. Mm-hmm. I'd say my wife and I went and did that, and I'd say just not far out past the the, the surf, um, I had an underwater camera, and uh, I was swimming around. I was seeing lots of really pretty fish and some very large fish, and then all of a sudden, up swims. What I perceived to be a mama, a daddy, and a baby squid, and I put my camera well, up because they were so perfect uh, swimming along there in this perfect little triangular formation. And I put my camera up, 
and they stopped. And when I hit the shutter and the shutter went off, they stayed there for a second. I put my camera down and they swam away just like, stop, hold on. He's going to take a shot. And I'm like, what just happened here? But they literally were posing. I mean, when I put that camera up, I I had the distinct feeling they knew what I was doing. And and be it known that this was a place where – when you went to this island, that's what you did. You snorkeled. So I'm sure lots of cruise ships stopped there to do snorkeling. It was a closed-in area. You know, my first you know, exposure to fish communication involved a barracuda on the Great Barrier Reef. And Susan and I were out swimming. We were, we'd been dropped off for a drift swim back to the boat. Uh, we dropped off in the Coral Sea. I'd done a couple of these solo um, and just swim back through all these coral bombies a couple of miles and end up back at the dive boat. I, my friend is a skipper on one of these boats, so they zodiac me out, and I just swim back. And I talked Susan into doing this one time, which I probably should not have done. But uh, we're, we're on the way back, and we're out in the middle of the darn ocean there, and we're diving on these incredible coral formations. And... I pull up behind a, a, a bomby in, in a bit of an eddy there so we can get some air and not just get pushed down the current. And all of a sudden, Susan yells, Ted, what kind of fish is that? And she knows what sharks are, so I'm curious. And I turn around, and I can feel her shifting behind me. And at one point, I think I can feel her balancing on one toe on the top of my head, you know, <laughs> out in the middle of the Pacific. And, and uh, uh, I turn around a foot and a half away from my mask as a great barracuda big fangs and uh, just a huge toothy barracuda. They look like a northern pike, only they're six feet long and more like a muskie, I suppose, and uh, big teeth. And uh, as soon as he had my attention, he uh, um, he turned broadside, and he had his dorsal fins down, and I was getting this real... I, I bred fish, so I'm kind of used to looking at fish language, and I, 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 she says, is he dangerous? And I go, no, that's a happy fish, and he swam around us in circles for a bit, and then he left. So I get back to the dive boat, and there he is posted up under the boat in a big broadside posture. He's got his dorsal fin down, and there's this big broadside. Hey, I'm, I'm passive, and I've got a photograph of him in that posture. I, he almost let me touch him. My finger was literally within a quarter inch of touching him, and he would just hold at that range. He wouldn't actually let me touch him, but he had no problem with me reaching. Um, I fed him by hand for a moment, um, and I have all those pictures on my on my website. Wow. That's awesome. Um, and and, and that, that's what taught me what that the passive posture is. So I take that 45-degree angle passive posture when the marlin showed up, and uh, he was really aggressive. His fins were all set, and he was in a head-first posture of aggression. So I turn broadside, and son of a gun, he drops his dorsal fins and, and his pecs and swims by me and lets me take two pictures of this puppy dog um, <laughs> striped marlin going by me. They, they do talk, you know, and, and if you learn that language – and you start fiddling with it a little bit, and you're in the moment, and you're present, and you've got your presence in mind, you can, uh, some really remarkable things can happen out there. And it's, When you turn broadside, what are you, what are you saying to them? You're, you're docile, or are you saying, I'm bigger than you? Well, it's kind of a little bit of both. You're showing them that you're big, and you're also showing them that you're not a threat. Uh, head-on posture is threatening. Everything that's going to eat you comes at you teeth first. So if you don't, if you don't uh, look at divers when they sit and they look at things, they're sitting there flaring their arms back and forth and staring straight forward at this thing. That's mad dogging. You don't want to do that. But uh, when, when an animal is, when a shark or, or other fish is really aggressive, like a billfish or something, and they'll face you, they'll snap their beaks, and they'll flare their gills to look big. And that gill flaring looks like your arms waving back and forth as you're treading water. So. You really want to be aware of your posture and how, because they're reading the whole picture. They're looking, they're grokking you. They're coming in and they're just getting this whole bandwidth of information off you at the same time. And so if you actually try to talk to them, um, they tend to respond rather interestingly. Um, wow. And this is, this is all anecdotal. You know, it, it takes work to get to this point, you know, and, um, and a lot of time in the sea. And I spend, as you know, Jeremy, I spend hours and hours every day out there, often alone. 
on working this stuff out. Not for long, you won't be. <laughs> well, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to that. I, I've heard that threat for a while, and when you're ready to make it good, we're ready to have you here, bud. No trouble at all. <laughs> I'm uh, coming. I swear. Yeah. Well, you know, you just just do it when the time's right and it feels good, and this place ain't going anywhere. Very good. Well, Ted, thank you so much for uh, taking us around on a, a nice little journey here. Yeah. With this episode. Yeah. Hey, uh, it was a good interview. It was a good interview. Thank you very much, you guys. Appreciate thank it. Thank you. Uh, Maybe I could plug my two sites then, uh, narcap.org and uh, everbluefreediving.com. Um, and uh, stay tuned. I'm writing some stuff. Eventually, it may be a book at some point. Oh, wow. Great. Excellent. Yeah. It's a pleasure always talking to you guys, Jeremy and Jeff. So it's always good. You as well. Yeah, indeed. All right. Take care. Thank you again. Hi, this is Ted Phillips, and you're listening to Paratopia. Beautiful. Yeah. So the Jeff. And so the Jeff. We meet again here in the after chat. The ping to my pong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Um, the cough to my bong? No. <sighs> Ted Rowe, everybody. Ted Rowe. Yes. Let's hear it. That was, uh, that was interesting. To say the least, yes. I now want to go to Arizona. I never wanted to go to Arizona before, but... Oh, it's awesome. You I think should. I'd like to take that trip. Yes, yes, yes. So what do you make of them there, lights there, the Jeff? Well, I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't understand. Again, I gotta... Well, <laughs> you're right about what you're gonna say is... How how does this go untouched? How does this, yeah. how does this not... How is this not the major news, you know? Um, there it is. Hey, Jacques Vallée. Hey, anybody. Mm-hmm. Haynes, Dr. Haynes, let's go. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Um, well, we don't have time for that. we got to research uh, UFOs and UAPs. Right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. <laughs> well, isn't it, isn't, it somewhat, um, isn't it somewhat typical, though, that the, the best thing is what you don't look at? I don't know. I... I, I I mean, clearly, there's something very bizarre going on there. And even if it's Earth lights, isn't that something to learn? I mean, there's some, the opportunity to, to look at something 30 to 40 feet away. Yeah, I mean, what does Earth lights mean? That's just a, another yeah. word. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're talking about earthquake lights, that's like uh, uh, like electrically charged air, which I guess defines as a plasma of some sort. But this sounds like so much more than that. That sounds like... Uh, you know, when you've got lights inside of lights and they're tumbling around like that, that's just just beyond that. I, I don't know if that denotes organization or not, but uh, it's certainly very strange. And I, I, I can't figure out um, the ability to sit in a spot where they appear directly above you. I, I mean, if there's that kind of consistency – can't imagine why someone hasn't hasn't built a research station there (laughs) like that's what should be done an air-conditioned research station well once again we find ourselves in strangeness territory right so what is there you've got christian monks who have somehow incorporated this into their christianity right you've got uh glyphs from 
old, really old Native American tribes mm-hmm. that may be related to them. Uh, they're way out in the middle of nowhere. It's really hot, hot as hell to get to. And when you finally get there and you've got all your equipment, you're more liable to not use any of it and to just stare mouth agape at these lights. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's that, too. I mean, I can understand that, but um, I, I don't. I mean, it's it, that certainly follows suit with everything else that you're more worried about watching it, not taking your eyes off it, than you are capturing data. Capturing data is almost taking your taking yourself out of the equation of observing it. I know that sounds dumb, but it it really is kind of kind of true. You're more concerned with how the shots frame, keeping the camera steady, making sure you're rolling tape, and the lens cap is off. Uh, should I zoom in? Should I zoom out? You're not really. Um, I don't. I don't think you're not. Um, you're not as naked to it, or you're not. Your senses aren't as thrown open to it as as it were if you were just standing there staring at it. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm thinking there's a trip here. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah, maybe this is our first Philippe Mora film. Yeah, yeah, that would be terrific. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think one of the things I'd like to have asked Ted, and I forgot, but I will contact and ask him, and we'll put it on the uh, notes to the show, uh, maybe on the message board or on the front page. Uh, you know, is there – I think he said there was footage of this out there that could be had online. Um, that I would very much like to see because uh, I haven't seen much uh, anywhere about uh, a somewhat secret or undisclosed area out there that um, – that all of this stuff happens. And I mean, I, if there's footage out there, even, even YouTube footage, I'll take it. I just want to see what it, how, I want to see what the lights behave like. I want to see if they're steady or whether they, they glimmer, whether or not they show scintillation or not, a reflected light. I mean, these are all things I'd be very curious about. What do you make of the NARCAP Chile connection? Or even the fact that there seems to be this burgeoning international collective Mm-hmm. Uh, studying this stuff. Does it matter? Mm. Wow. I can't tell if it's a big deal or not. <laughs> um, I think it's a big deal. I think that it's... Um, I think it's going to be tricky because I think that if you... Just say you've got a pilot and this pilot... Like we were talking about, you know, gun camera footage and whatnot. If you've got gun camera footage of an unknown structured object, not a light in the sky, not a glimmer, just, I mean, something fairly solid in reasonable proximity to an aircraft, then I would think that it might be prudent to check around and to say, is this yours? Is this yours? You know, under under the cover of... Um, uh, of trying to kind of clear yourself of what exactly isn't this. Um, so if I don't see, and I don't know how that would work. I mean, does the Chilean government go to the United States and say, I'm sorry, we got this in our airspace. Is this yours? Uh, Russia, so on and so forth. I mean, how would that work? Again, I question how you would differentiate the unknown from the flight of something that we're testing or that some nation is testing that they would rather not have people know about. Um, the question would bear then, you know, why is it in, I don't know, some countries restricted airspace or possible restricted airspace. Uh, 
I think we do that. I'm guessing. I don't know. But, uh, you know, there was that uh, that thing on the History Channel not long ago where they showed what the, the host of the show referred to as a contrail that traversed the United States um, from out towards Nevada, leaving a donuts on a rope contrail. And he said, could this be Aurora? And this thing basically went off the coast of the United States um, out into the ocean. And so where was it going from there? Uh, was it going to fly over Russia or was it going to fly over, uh, you know, Western Europe or and turn around? I mean, either way you cut it, uh, I don't know. I mean, if it's, if it's uh, upper atmosphere stuff. See, I don't know how the law works with airspace and what who you can fly over and who you can't but um how would you i i just i question how you would be able to differentiate something from an unknown to what this looks like this might be someone's project you know i mean that's if it's a structured object i don't know i mean that part of it could get a little hinky i think um but what i find the most interesting is that the government has made a concerted effort here to study this. And so therefore I don't think you study this and I don't think you put forth the resources to, to operate that, that study, unless you've got really good data that says there's something here and we need to study this. The question is what will they do with the data if they get something very solid, very tangible, um, quite unbelievable, I'm sure. Um, what would they do with that data then? Would that be parsed out through NARCAP or would it be the kind of thing, like I said, where they would kind of weigh their options <laughs> um, as to the effects on their own people? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know what the mindset or the, the climate down, is down there as far as this stuff. I mean, are people up for it? Or are they not? You would think people would be pretty much the same wherever you'd go on the planet, um, save the native cultures, um, that there might be some concern, <laughs> to put it lightly. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. I, I got that a would question. Be my, you know? Um. It's a little abstract, but maybe not. Which is, you know, when we talk about all this stuff, to hear him talk about plasmas, for instance. Mm-hmm. And some plasmas may shapeshift. Mm-hmm. Uh, some plasmas may be intelligent. Some plasmas may be uh, imitating. Um, I mean, if we're just going to talk about this stuff maturely, does that mean we're not supposed to be amazed? Like, what are we saying when we say that? What are we actually saying? Like, holy shit, plasmas do that? Really? Mm-hmm. Is this a life form floating around in the air? Like, what is a plasma? Is it some sort of living data bits from the collective conscious that come alive for a minute or two? What is it? Like, what is it? Is it the universe interacting on some minuscule level with the physical world, you know, interacting with our thought? I mean, what does that mean? <laughs> what are we talking about? Yeah, you can't imagine that someone would just sit back and go, oh, well, it's the uh, over-consciousness of human soul. That's what it is. Oh, okay. But, that's how, but we just talk about it like, well, did you, did you read that NASA report on plasma? I mean, <laughs> right. you have the feeling that if they really did come across, say, aliens, it would just be, it would be that. Well, we've got a lot of good evidence that there's aliens. 
It's like, yeah. holy shit, dude, there's aliens. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it would take a hell of a lot of study to try and figure out what it is. And I mean, dare you put it this way that, I mean, how do we study anything else that we can't actually get our hands on? Don't we dart it and, uh, and try and put it on the ground so that we can cage it and put it to sleep and then study it for a short while and then let it go. Um, I, it stands to reason I don't think you're going to be able to do that with this. Yeah, but uh, it also stands to reason that there would at least be a team of people paid to figure a way out to study it the way anyone would study weather, atmosphere, anything yeah, else. You know? Yeah. I mean, lowering something into a very large object or something like that. I mean, and there's no small amount of danger, I would think, in that you don't know what it is and you don't know what its behavior is going to be. And um, and so how close can you get or how close will you get uh, to something like that? I mean, I can tell you in no uncertain terms, you know, in Arizona, if we would go out there and sit in that spot, one of those red lights would come down within 10 feet. I'd be stepping aside uh, because we don't know what it is and you don't know what it can do to you. And by the same token, I don't think that um, – uh, I don't think running up on the back end of one of these things, if, if you can do that in an aircraft, uh, would be a particularly bright move anyway because, I don't know, you look at all these pilot reports and you look at the way something like that is studied from the air, um, they'll get close to you. But when you try to move on them, that's when they kind of pull their little – I went the opposite direction without stopping or without turning around and um, – so it tends to be elusive. I mean, uh, I mean, for all we know, there's something in Chile, like Ted was talking about, is in Arizona. Um, might there be something like that down there? He said there are more than one spot, and they're finding more all the time that are like this. I wonder what uh, it says about those lights that they can move through trees, you know, essentially solid objects, mm-hmm. maintain their composition, and and not affect the tree at all. I mean, what does that make it? Sounds like intelligence to me. I mean, I don't know. The, the question is, is it weaving through the trees or is it going through them? I mean, he made it sound like it was going through solid through, objects. Through solid objects, yeah. Well. But if even if it is weaving through trees, that's intelligence. Oh, well, yeah. Well, either that or there's some kind of um, – there might be some kind of gravitic effect that the trees might have or the ground might have to kind of – kind of like a, like, like a pinball machine. You know, where if this thing enters through trees or it's drawn one way or another and there's some kind of uh, gravitational force that surrounds the trees and the ground that it might kind of, I don't know, you know, bang all through. Are we so amazed by intelligence anyway? Haven't we figured it out that it's all intelligence? I mean, <laughs> the difference between us doing something on our own and an animal doing something through instinct is um, a difference in quality of intelligence, but... There's still intelligence, right? And so, what is instinct then? Someone else—it's like it's like some inherent pattern of intelligence that weaves throughout, you know, creation. Hmm. I, I mean, is no one amazed by that? I mean, I always go back to that little childhood thing of of like, wow, why is it that anything anything moves at all? Why does anything have any action at all? Hmm. Uh, and if they're not self-conscious the way we are uh, and, and have free will or whatever, then 
you know, why is an amoeba doing anything? Something's <laughs> giving it intelligence. Something's right. giving it force. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, as far as instinct, I look at, um, I think about, well, when I used to deer hunt or when I used to nuisance trap and stuff like that, and a lot of the animals that you would see, uh, I, I think deer especially, um, I was on 400 acres some years ago, and I went really deep in the woods with a friend of mine, and um, I bet you it took us, if we went into the woods at 7, I bet you we didn't stop walking until about 10, 30, 11 o'clock, and it was pretty much a straight, steady shot. We had a compass on us, and we were just walking straight in. We wanted to see how deep and how thick it would get. And, you know, could we possibly take four wheelers back and put a tree stand in somewhere? I know listeners, I don't hunt anymore. So, um, no hate mail, please. Um, but at a certain point we heard movement. And so we kind of crouched down and here is a 12 point buck that is, uh, tearing the velvet off of his antlers against a tree. And so we saw it, and uh, and it was neat. We watched it for a couple of minutes, and then we just said, well, let's walk towards it. <laughs> It'll take off, right? It, it'll take off. And um, and he stood there, and we got really close. Um, I mean, far more than close that I could have spit on him. And you know, at a certain point, I think the wind may have changed direction, and he kind of like looked, kind of looked down like, he wasn't sure if we were even there or not, and um, and then he kind of just walked away at a quick pace, but he didn't run. He didn't take off as if he was scared to death. And so you wonder at that point if this thing had ever seen a human being, and if it had, what was the interaction like? I mean – this was almost the kind of thing where you think if you'd have gone back there every day and seen him in the same spot every day, it would have been um, – he would have gotten used to you. Like that was definitely the feeling that you got. Uh, like he wasn't at all afraid of you. He just didn't quite know what you were. You know, Is that how instinct starts? Like if we'd have hurt him in any way, then immediately he'd have known when he smells human, that means I get hit in the head or I get poked or whatever. And that means run. <laughs> Uh, but when something isn't messed with, like you have to wonder what was the world like before, uh, you know, in, in certain areas where there was just animals, there was no man, uh, what were animals like forget with each other, but what if man entered the picture Would would the animal just stand there much like that, not knowing, uh, that the man was going to kill him for food. I mean, um, nowadays, so many wild animals know what man is, know what a tractor sounds like, know what gasoline smells like and, and cigarette smoke. And they know I'm not supposed to be around here. I don't, I know what that means. I know what that equals. Um, so I mean, I, I always thought that's kind of how instinct started was just ingrained behavior, ingrained pattern. And then maybe that gets passed on, you know, genetically somehow. But even just knowing how to live, you know, something mm-hmm. being born and knowing how to exist, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. I just think that that's there's something so incredibly amazing about that that just gets overlooked, you know. Oh, yeah. 
mean, how is that even possible? <laughs> yeah, it's nature, Jeremy. That's the answer you're getting. And while I'm asking these bong hit questions, uh, <laughs> so if you have an ice age, as all we've right. had in the past, and it wipes out all life, uh, bowls it over with, you know, ice, and then that ice age melts, um, where does that new life come from? How does it repopulate with with uh, species that are specific to the region? I had asked this on the message board, and somebody wrote, I think Piglet Shameful wrote, that, you know, I think eggs can remain frozen for a really long time. But, okay, so reptiles lay eggs. But what about all the mammals? What about everything else? Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Where does that come from? And they're and they're specific to the region, right? There 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 are lots of species that are only found in certain locations. Uh, right. If those locations were just covered with ice, and the right. ice melted, what happened? <laughs> well, like that so reminds me of what Lisa was saying the other night when I called you about the Mars thing, and I called you about the the Mars program. Uh, that's why I was thinking it. I don't know. Well, I mean, she got kind of irritated because the scientists kept saying they were looking for water on Mars. And, of course, they found frozen water. But they think that there's water underneath the crust where, you know, that it's likely Mars is still warm inside. And, therefore, this ice may be a liquid at a certain point underneath the crust. And is there life there? And everybody was hung up. All the scientists were like, you must have water for life. You must have water for life. If there's not water, forget it. You know, it's not, not going to happen. But, I mean, we're finding out that's not true. And there are places in the California desert out in the salt flats where nothing should live, and yet there's microorganisms growing out there in salt and arsenic and all sorts of noxious fumes. And, uh, you know, life just finds a way somehow to exist wherever. And... um I, 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 I mean, there's no good answer to your question. I don't know that. I mean, a biologist might, might be able to give you a, a theory, but um, I don't know. I don't, I don't necessarily believe that water is the is the um, n- one of the necessary building blocks. I think life will just find a way to be somehow, and how that happens, I don't have any clue. Well, tell everyone about the Mars thing, because I find that fascinating. Um, well, I mean, they were talking about all of the landers that have gone – and uh, and I think last week we lost uh, one of them that became stuck, and then it's uh, it, it, some about it couldn't go into night mode, so it couldn't keep itself warm, and ultimately its it, its recharge just uh, just died. So, but um, you know they 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 land the the one of the rovers on Mars, and its wheel became stuck, and this was down near, near I believe it's the south southern pole of Mars and um the wheel locked up and so when they drove it it drug one of its own wheels and this tore like a trench in the ground and when they looked back at this trench they saw this this basically what amounted to a layer of ice covered with a thin sheet of dust um and so there was a lot more water than what you can actually see from you know, an orbital stance when you're looking at the planet and you can see this white cap on the end. Um, it's actually a lot broader than that. 
And uh, I don't know that they expect, I think they expected that. That's what they had surmised was there. Uh, but now they're asking the question, you know, is Mars dead or is it still warm inside in, at its core? And uh, I'm, I'm fairly certain that they said that that was a, kind of a, they don't know, they think that it might be. And so on some level, if there's, uh, if there's, how deep is that ice? I mean, I don't know how deep that, I, I don't know if they know how deep the ice is there, but should it go deep enough or uh, should the planet be warm inside? Uh, is that frozen, whatever it is, uh, it's, it's water, but there's other chemicals in it, but ultimately is that a liquid inside? And if so, if it's a liquid, then what is it? Uh, what's in it and, and what's its makeup and what's its possibilities for life or is there life in it? But I found the interesting thing that when the lander put down and the rover rolled off, it shot a picture of one of the legs and uh, and that leg looked like it had barnacles on it, which was really interesting. To my eye, I'll tell you what I think it looked like. It looked like bugs. <laughs> it looked like bugs on the leg of this thing. They say it's water, which could be too. The resolution's not really good enough for them to tell if it's water droplets forming uh, or not. But... They also found it snowing, and so <laughs> that was kind of interesting because they said as the sun goes down, the basically mist, cloud matter, becomes a solid. So it goes from a gas to a solid, and it snows, and when the sun comes up, it goes back into a gas, which I think is kind of neat in that it's not rain, it's gas. That is snowing down as it as it gets colder. So um, the other thing that they found, which I thought was really bizarre, uh, and I hope I'm saying this right, I think they said it was a certain chlorite, and I can't remember what that chlorite was. I'm sure if you look it up, you can find it. But they said they were kind of surprised to find this particular chlorite because its chemical makeup is not unnatural. It can occur naturally. It occurs, it occurs naturally incidentally in Chile. <laughs> and this particular, excuse me, chloride is what is predominantly used in propulsion of fireworks and rockets. So I thought that was kind of weird because that immediately reminded me of, of Whitley's Keymaster talking about uh, you know, destroying Mars. Like, well, what would be the debris left over from bombs or an explosive device? Or would that be it? I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's probably naturally occurring. It was just kind of a weird synchronicity to Chile to, you know, uh, this is a propellant for rockets and fireworks to this is what they find on Mars. But, um, I mean, it's really, it was an interesting program and amazing stills of like a Martian sunrise and sunset uh, of which one I found online and printed out at my desk at work but um i mean in as much as you find uh you know the whole thing of life coming forth out of a out of an ice age like that uh personally every time i look up and see a picture of a sunset on mars i go what the fuck <laughs> like i'm on this planet that's on another planet and they're moving it with a you know joystick and a computer 
you know, at NASA and this thing is actually doing something on another planet that we can actually view a sunset on another planet. To me, that is mind blowing. Like I find that amazing. So, um, yeah, yeah, I do. Well, I do. It is. it is. It's, it's, uh, it's unthinkable to me. Like I, I, I can't imagine. Um, although I'd, I would love to be in the room when one of those things actually touches down and it's a success and, and they, they see the first pictures. Like, what must that be like to work all that time on something and it actually works? Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's an amazing achievement. Someday, you and I will will understand what it's like to work on something and have it work. Right. <laughs> yeah. But until that time, I think we should call it quits. Yeah. That was a good show. Next week is uh, Bill Burns in a I don't know if I would call it a pull-no-punches interview, but I certainly asked him every question I think anyone's ever wanted to ask him, including the one I think most of our listeners have been wanting to hear. Why did he tell that guy on UFO Hunters he was a hybrid? Oh. That's right. Bill Burns answers everything next week, uh, so do tune in for that. Well, you will, because you're subscribers. So <laughs> We've got you at gunpoint. <laughs> That's right. We, we own you. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, and I guess we should uh I should mention, even though it's on our homepage, that um Dr. Dennis McKenna got his complete funding plus on Kickstarter.com for his book, The Brotherhood of the Screaming Abyss. And so all you oh. listeners That's right, scream Jeremy, scream at the Abyss. Oh, oh, oh. Uh all you listeners who donated to that project, uh thank you very much. And uh the communion Bughead auction was pretty damn successful, so we got him around 180 some odd dollars, and I put that into his kitty. So um, that's that. So he's got. I think last time I looked, it was 81 thousand dollars. He has plenty of money to go back to South America. That's right. Smoke the dope and write the book. Right. Write that book, Dennis. <laughs> that's great. I, I mean, don't know it's, what it's, his lifestyle costs. 80 grand, but. My God, hey, am I jealous? <laughs> I have, it's you know what? It's um, uh, it's like you said. Everything else on hold and write the book. Yeah, and um, and I think it's I think it's fantastic. I, I it's going to be great, and um, I'm I'm super looking forward to it. So, so many thanks to everybody who donated uh, from our end of town onto that, and we sure appreciate it. Yep. All right, Peritopia, onward and upward. We will see you next week. We love you and sweet dreams. Good night.